You're listening to the Speech Uncensored Podcast. Join us for weekly discussions diving into all the particulars of communication, voice, swallow, and cognition with tangible applications to the world of medical speech and language pathology. Resources and the discussion guide for this episode are located in specially curated show notes on speechuncensored.com. By now, if you've listened to this podcast for any length of time, you may have picked up that I'm kind of obsessed with two things. Okay, honestly, I'm obsessed with a lot of things, but (laughs) the top two for this week are patient-reported outcome measures and mindfulness. I mean, yeah, I love a lot of stuff, but like right now in my practice and in my life, proms and mindfulness are two of my favorite things to learn about and use. I just, I think they're both so useful. So imagine my delight when I'm perusing the social media and I find an SLP who's talking about using a prom involving mindfulness with her patients. I all but fell over myself in excitement to reach out to Dana Bryant and learn more and see if she wanted to come on the podcast and share. Lucky for all of us and my blood pressure, she did. (laughs) And so I'm pleased to present Dana Bryant as this week's guest to discuss the use of mindful attention and awareness scale in her clinical care of patients with acquired or traumatic brain injury. Dana is here to explore the purpose and benefits of the scale, the relevant research around it, and implications for its use in that patient population. My name is Leanne Porter. I am your completely thrilled host, and I hope you're ready to get your nourish and flourish on because you guys, we are in for a treat today. Welcome to the Speech Uncensored podcast, Dana. How are you doing today? I'm great. I'm great. It's good to be here. How are you today? I'm doing good. I'm excited for our talk. I'm really looking forward to exploring mindfulness, attention, and awareness in TBI recovery with you. And I'm really thrilled to learn more about the tool that I learned about from you on social media, the Mindful Attention and Awareness Scale. Do you call it the MOSS for short? So I call it the the MOSS, but I don't know if that's really what we're supposed to call it, (laughs) but that's what I call it. Okay, cool. I'll go with that. I love calling things by their like abbreviated names or their acronyms. Um, And I get really tickled when people pronounce the acronyms differently. Oh, what's one of them? The RIPA. So, you know, the RIPA, some people call it the RIPA and I'm like, oh no, it should be the RIPA. You're saying it wrong and they think I'm saying it wrong. So it's a really good time had by all. And that's my story. Yeah, the same thing with the aphasia battery, too. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Dana, I want to learn more about you. Tell me who you are, where you are, and what you do. I am originally from Birmingham, Alabama. Right now, I live in Alexandria, Virginia. I have been a speech language pathologist for about nine years, a little over nine years. My specialty area is neuro rehab. So I work with people who are rehabilitating from stroke, brain injury, um, any type of neuro-related disease. I do work with some people who have neurodegenerative disease, brain tumors, uh, you name it. Anything related to the brain, I help people with recovery. And so I have been working at a TBI clinic which is wonderful. And it is 
specialty with service members. So it's military men and women who have experienced uh, acquired brain injury or traumatic brain injury. And so, yeah, it's been fun. I love what I do. I still, even though some people think this is super specific, there's still a lot of variety within acquired brain injury or traumatic brain injury. So I still feel like no two days are exactly the same. Absolutely. I 100% agree with you there. Such vast diversity in that scope. Like, wow. So can I ask a little bit more about the populations that you typically see in your practice? Yeah. Okay. So what are the age ranges and are these folks looking to like get back into work or back into their military roles? Are they like discharged? Like where are they on that spectrum? Great question. So a lot of my patients, a huge majority of my caseload is continues to be active duty. So they are working. They are active in their community. They are leading households. Um, So it's interesting. They're not, I don't have a huge acute population. I do have some, but some people's TBI could have been a decade ago or, you know, six years ago or something like that. So it really can challenge you to dig deeper, or they may have already finished multiple rounds of inpatient rehab and they're coming to you because all the other places have said, oh, you've met all your goals, you're good. So what looks to be mild, right, by a lot of people or what seems to be, well, they're functional, right? And they may be functional by certain people's standard, but they're maybe not where they need to be to fulfill their work requirements or their household responsibilities in, a, in the way that they would like to or the way that they, their family needs them to. So it's definitely interesting. Some things are subtle and you have to really dig deeper, which is why I found this tool to start using because you become an investigator, a detective, right? You're trying to figure out what other people haven't figured out yet and put the pieces together, which is fun. It's challenging. Mm-hmm. It's fun. And so you, I think as an SLP, sometimes we get stuck with just our assessments, but I've been challenged by working in a multidisciplinary setting with a lot of different other providers to think outside the box, to bring in other tools, to see what else I can use in my assessment and my treatment. And so that's definitely been a blessing. That's awesome. Ooh, I like that. I love hearing all of that, like so much. I find that outpatient is such a like uniquely challenging place to work because the assessments that are out there, most of them, not all of them, but most of them, especially like the really popular ones, really weren't made for outpatient settings because we really do get very high functioning people where there are still actually significant problems with them engaging in their everyday life and the needs like you mentioned. And so we do, we have to get creative. We we have to find other ways to measure how these things are impacting their daily life and how our therapy is addressing those things and showing improvement and progress along those lines. So Yeah, let's, okay, let's get into the good stuff. Let's get into one of these tools that you have found that will like help you do this. All right, what is the MASS or the Mindful Attention and Awareness Scale? So it is a 15 item 
questionnaire. And it's something that patient actually, they can fill it out by themselves. But I tend to fill it out with my patients, especially if they're confused by some of the questions, or maybe they need a little bit more elaboration or examples, or maybe just more time to think. I also, I have to think about that a lot of my patients have some behavioral health concerns too, just from the military, being in the military, there might be anxiety, there might be depression, there might be post-traumatic stress. So I like to do it with them in case this arises any of those feelings so that I can be there to kind of walk them through that. So Mm -hmm. it's a 15 item scale and it basically asks questions related to a person's awareness or their attention. What's taking place in the moment, in the exact present moment? That's basically what mindfulness is. A lot of people will interchange the word meditation and mindfulness. I know those are really big buzzwords, but if you really do the research, you'll find that mindfulness just means being fully present and in the moment. Can you do that through a meditative state? Sure. But you can be, I mean, I'm being mindful right now just by speaking to you. You know, I am fully engaged, fully present, not letting my mind wander. If it does, I redirect. I'm eliminating distractions. I'm doing what I need to do to be able to attend in this moment, process in this moment, and then be able to create a memory. So it's 15 items. I would love to, I'm going to send you a link to it so that you can put it in the show notes. But it asks questions like, are you ever, do you ever drive somewhere and not really remember driving there? Or do people bring up events and you really don't remember them? Or, you know, do you have trouble eating too much? You're not aware of how much you're eating. Or uh, when you meet someone, are you attentive to this? Are you attentive to that? Do you find yourself on autopilot a lot? So it's it's some great questions on there. And those are some common complaints that I get from some of my patients is, Dana, I go the whole day on autopilot. I can't tell you what I ate for breakfast. I can't tell you what route I took Mm -hmm. to work. I can't tell you, you know, what my wife said before I left out the door. I'm always like, huh? Huh? What'd you say? And so some things, and I say this, (laughs) I say this in a laughable way, but Memory gets the bad rep. Everybody thinks they have bad memory, right? So a lot of people come in and they say, oh, my memory's yep. terrible. My memory's terrible. Help me with my memory. But then you do some digging and you find out that, whoa, 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 we got to talk about attention first. There's a great quote that says, attention is the gateway to memory. And I have this quote in my office because mm-hmm. I really want people to understand that you can't remember something that you never attended to. So this is key. This is very valuable information. And I think the more SLPs start to realize the connection between attention, processing, memory, then we'll get further with our memory goals if we're not seeing the progress that that we need to, we want to. 
I'm like so excited to hear you talk about the importance of attention because I don't know, maybe like, I think all of us outpatient SLPs should just get together and like commiserate, you know, (laughs) because like we experience this on like such a constant level. And then we feel like everybody else needs to know these things. Um, Because I feel like I had to stumble upon this and practice and learn it from experience and in working with these patients individually is, yeah, they always come in and they're like, my memory is terrible. And we'll do like little assessments or like therapeutic activities that are like really based in memory and they'll do great and they have great strategies. And so I'm like, you know what, this really isn't a memory problem. Like, where's your attention right now? How divided is it? Are you? And then, you know, I want, oh my gosh, I always do this exercise where I talk about, can you tell me about internal distractors and external distractors? And even when I give hints and really exp- unpack what that is, people have such a hard time telling me an example of a distractor. And I'm like, well, you know, if the TV was on, isn't that a distractor? Oh, yeah, yeah, it is. But like they can't like come up with that on their own. And it like blows my mind, right? Yeah, that insight is so important. That awareness is so important. And, you know, I use analogies a lot. And what I like in this, this too is looking under the hood of a car. That's what patients are doing when they come to us. They may not know why their car won't start, why it's making a noise, why the lights won't come on or something like that. But here's this safe space in our therapy session to really Mm -hmm. pull back the layers and discover what are your barriers? What are your challenges? Like you said, what are your internal distractors? Where does your mind wander to, right? What are your external distractors? Can you go 10 minutes without checking your email or, you know, checking your text messages? Do you have pain that's distracting? Do you have uh, fatigue, you know, Mm -hmm. sleep stuff? Like, I mean, you have to really start thinking holistically about a person and what would take them out of the moment that they're in. And a lot of times it could be, you know, given my population, it could be chronic pain. It could be sleep deprivation. It could be life stressors. It could be post-traumatic stress. It could be hypervigilance. You know, them thinking about safety issues or health things because of just their past and their inclination to look for exits when they walk in the room. They're not worried about you know, attending to someone's name, they're worried about sizing this person up, you know, or are they a threat or where are my exits? And so working with behavioral health providers, like psychologists, you know, therapists, neuropsychology, uh, psychiatry, and teaming up and and helping them see the big picture, like, oh, okay, my anxiety, right, could be affecting my attention or, you know, my post-traumatic stress could be affecting my attention, which then affects my memory. And like I said, it's a safe space to explore these things, to look under the hood of the car, because who on average thinks about thinking? Nobody does that. We're, we're the profession where you can do metacognitive training, where you can mm-hmm. really do this. Okay. So how did you like find this tool and start using it? How was it brought to your attention? I'm going to be so honest with you. I think I ran across it when I was cleaning the office of someone who left. (laughs) And 
so I, I saw it and then I ran across it in literature again. And I was like, wait, I've seen this somewhere in my office before. And so then I like found it and just Googled it and it's, it's online. There's a lot of research studies that have validated it. It's a, mm. it's a wonderful measure. They've even developed a child version, which I think is so freaking cool because yeah. you have to think about a person's, their readiness to learn, right? Uh, if a child is not, if their attention is not where it needs to be, then they're not in a, the best state for readiness to learn. And that's how I kind of treat my treatment sessions too. So I found it like that. <laughs> So the best answer is, I, I guess I stole it. <laughs> I guess that's the best answer. But it's been amazing. <laughs> it's been amazing to use. My patients, they get it. Once I start explaining it, they get it. Mm-hmm. It's quick. It takes 10 minutes to give. I mean, it's super easy, straightforward. It just asks you how frequently things occur. So it's like a scale. But yeah, it's interesting at the end for them, for some patients to look back at their responses and say, wow, I never really thought about this. Or, wow, I really need to get better at this. Or some mm-hmm. people get really upset or sad and they'll say, why am I like this? Or, you know, can I even get better? Is this, am I stuck like this? So it's pretty interesting. It's, it's revealing. You mentioned that when patients look back at it, so how often do you have your patients take this assessment um, and when do you offer that time to like look back at their past scores? Yeah, so I give it in the beginning. I will say that I am getting better about giving it again at the end, (laughs) but I really, I use a lot of qualitative data. I'm just a very qualitative person and I, we bring up experiences. So I know they're getting better, quote unquote, when I can ask them certain questions and they respond or they respond in a certain way. So one thing I might ask them about are, we'll go through their camera roll and their phone. They might pull up vacation pictures, right? And I'll start asking them details, not necessarily the what, Mm. but the how. So that's my keyword when I work with a lot of people on this is I'll say, how was your trip? How was your vacation? How was dinner? How was the weather? How was your flight? Right? Because when I ask, well, how, you know, what did you do? What did you eat? That's more memory. But it takes you being really in the moment to answer a how question. So I even ask them when they get into my office, I say, how was your drive in? You know, how was breakfast or dinner last night or different things, your walk, you know, your workout this morning. And I teach them how to engage a lot of their senses. So they might say, oh, yeah, I I, I knew you were going to ask me something about that. So I paid attention to the sounds I heard, you know, when I went walking this morning, or I paid attention to the taste of my breakfast. And I'm like, yes, you're staying in the moment. I'm so proud of you. We get all excited and stuff. But you got to think for someone who's never really been in the moment, this is pivotal. This is groundbreaking. 
you know, especially if they have experienced hypervigilance, like uh, anxiety and things of that nature where they're quote unquote worried about things that the average civilian doesn't Mm -hmm. worry about, right? You and I, we don't go into stores and say, where's the nearest exit? How many people are in the room? Anybody, you know, carrying a gun? Like, we don't think about that stuff. But think about how how exhausting that must be and how much of life you miss out on, right? If that was you. That makes me so sad inside. (laughs) That's really tough. I mean, that takes so much. I didn't mean to make you sad. (laughs) Well, it doesn't take much sometimes these days, like... But like, seriously, like when you, when you set it up like that, like how cognitively exhausting, like all their effort and attention and stamina is going towards these safety questions. And and that's where their awareness is focused. And so like bringing their awareness into all these other measures and all of the senses is also really grounding, which we also know really helps people with anxiety to calm and and be more aware and present in that moment. So it's like, I really love how you emphasize these how questions and that you set up expectations with your patients because they're like, oh, Dana's going to ask me about like all these things. So I better start paying attention. <laughs> and it's it's that simple way that we can change behaviors by just placing that expectation. Like, I'm just going to ask you about it. I'm not going to judge you for it, whether or not like, you paid attention, just know that I will ask you about it. So you can, you can tell me or not tell me it's up to you. (laughs) Definitely. Yeah. And, and so what we know from the research, the literature shows that people who have greater mindful attention, they have less stress, less anxiety, better emotional regulation, self-regulation, better emotional control, and better memory. We know this in children and adults. Now there's so much research coming out. So we're helping a lot of people get over some barriers, right? And, you know, when you think about it, we could really help people who are going to see therapists, like behavioral health therapists, mental health therapists. This could be a huge barrier for them, right? And we could work jointly. If you have a patient, they have comorbidities, then think about how you can maybe incorporate this into your care or, you know, work with your coworkers on stuff like this. It's fascinating stuff. I mean, you can go down the rabbit hole online and see all the benefits, but it's it's cool. And oh, one more other thing that I was going to mention was being on autopilot is not a bad thing, right? I know sometimes it's looked at, it's just, it has a negative connotation. There are times when you want your body or your brain to be on autopilot. I don't want to be mindful when I'm tying my shoes. I don't want to be mindful when I'm at the dentist. <laughs> you know, like I don't want to be mindful sometimes. So the brain has this feature to conserve energy. So it's a it can be a protective feature, right? When we're on autopilot sometimes, but the problem is when we're on autopilot all the time or we're not in control of this feature, right? So this is when it actually robs us of these moment-to-moment experiences with our families, with our loved ones, you know, it takes away this ability to create these beautiful memories. Who doesn't 
want to remember all the wonderful details and attend to all the wonderful details while they're on vacation or, you know, while they're on this wonderful hiking trip or fishing trip or golfing with their buddies. Like you want to be able to attend to that and stay in the moment and capture those as memories. And when you're on autopilot all the time, then you don't have that capacity as much. I'm so glad you took the conversation in that direction and unpacked that autopilot is not evil and what we're working against. It might be the frequency with which autopilot is showing up in people's lives where it's hindering them from recalling important things or even even sometimes when things aren't important, but they come up later as being necessary. Like knowing when you can turn off autopilot or being able to like recognize you have the ability to turn off the autopilot when you recognize it's a moment you need to focus and knowing that it can be your friend and help you conserve that mental energy too. Like that's a really important thing to share with people. I like that. Okay. So you mentioned that you give the mindful attention and awareness scale um, at the beginning, kind of during that evaluation period. And also the goal is kind of like at the end so that they can kind of compare their scores, right? Yeah. How else do you use it uh, to treat those acquired brain injury patients? Is it just as a tool to kind of like get that conversation going and to mark progress? I see it. That's, I think that's a beautiful way you just put it to get that conversation going. I mean, because this is a validated scale, right? It holds more weight than me just coming in saying, hey, attention is the gateway to memory. And (laughs) you have to attend before you can remember. So like, what is this? lady talking about right so but if i say hey here's the scale right it backs me up it gives me this evidence that other people who have been experiencing the same thing right number one they're like wow there's a scale for this you know there's other people out there that need something like this that may be answering the same way that i'm answering so I I definitely use it as a way to open up that door, to crack that door open and get the conversation going. And ideally, I would love to, you know, maybe one day do a study or something where I compare the scores and and different things like that. I think ideally it would need to be given at at initial, initial intake assessment and at discharge so you can really compare. But like I said, I've just I've been so qualitative in nature that I can just tell when someone has really been taking what we've been saying to heart and doing it. But that it would, de- I know the scores would support, you know, what I see. I know they would. And patients mm-hmm. even say it, you know, when we do discharges and we wrap up and I say, oh, okay, well, what's been your favorite part or what's different now than before or what's been most helpful or what are you doing now that you didn't do before or something like that. And they bring it up. They bring up the whole mindfulness stuff, um, which I'm going to admit, I'm not the only one in my clinic talking about. So it's not like this is like just me on an island. I have occupational therapists that know about mindfulness. I work with an acupuncturist. I work with a music therapist. There's a whole team of us who know what mindfulness is. We actually even have groups, uh, relaxation and mindfulness groups. So 
when you have the whole team emphasizing, reinforcing each other, you know, and reinforcing concepts and saying, hey, this is related to this and this can help you with this, then it makes my job so much easier. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It sure does. Okay. So my next question is, uh, do you have any like specific examples that come to mind with your experience in using the scale and the associated concepts of mindfulness? Like, are there any patients that stand out who really, like you mentioned, like really like took it to heart and started using these things and they really saw benefit and change? Yes. I have a few resources that I actually share with patients too, to help them. There's a book called The Mindful Day by Lori J. Cameron. And it's one of my favorite books. And I think it gives a lot of practical ways throughout the day where someone could be more mindful or notice where they aren't mindful. So some of my patients buy the book or, you know, we'll discuss, I may bring in the book and we might, you know, read a couple pages or discuss a chapter or something like that. And they'll say, wow, this is incredible. Or I might go over the breathing app, which is one of my favorite apps. It's it's free and it's literally called the breathing app. And we talk about things like the parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous system. We talk about stimulating the vagus nerve. Like this would be really tough with someone, you know, who may be severe or moderate TBI or acute, but because of the high functioning population that I tend to work with, I can pull up diagrams. They already know a little bit about probably the respiratory system through the relaxation class that they've probably been taking at my clinic or acupuncture or, you know, something like that. So they're engaged. They're like, huh, what? You mean to tell me I can do this diaphragmatic breathing and then it will calm me down. Like there's a science behind that. Cause we've known this for decades and decades that diaphragmatic breathing calms you down. But now we actually know why and how. So we know things about fight or flight response mode. We know about activating the relaxation response. So neuroscience has come so far and we have to start tapping into this and using it as evidence, right? And, and leveraging it to our patients because they want to know, well, why am I doing this? Or how does this help? Or what is this going to do for me? It helps with patient buy-in. It helps them keep coming back. It helps them with follow-through, with homework exercises. So yeah, when when I say, hi, good morning, how's it going? Did you do your homework? Or, you know, what have you been up to since the last session? They immediately start talking about, well, you know, I've been using that app you told me about, or I've been being more mindful, or I've been using that scale you get. There's another skill I, I uh, forgot to mention, but I kind of created a attention scale that's similar to the pain rating scale where they actually put themselves on a scale of how attentive they are during our sessions. Um, So it's just, you know, a zero to 10 scale. And we talk about how knowing what that number is, is very informative. Mm. It helps me know how much information I need to give them that session. It helps me know how many redirection cues I need to give. It helps me know 
you know, the low? Do I need to give them more breaks? Do I need to end the session early today? Are they in the best headspace? So we talk about all this stuff and they'll say, man, you know what? I noticed that beginning of the day, I'm like a, a two or three, but by the time I get off work, I'm like eight or nine. I can't, I'm just so easily distracted. The littlest thing throws me off or something like that. So we talk about these changes throughout the day in their attention. They're changes across context. Like I wonder why your attention is different at work than at home or when you're talking to your wife versus your best friend or, you know, different things like that. Or I wonder why you went so far, you know, like at first you were with me today, but then all of a sudden it, your back started hurting, right? Chronic pain. And then it was, you, you got really fidgety mm-hmm. and then it was like I had to end the session early. So this awareness is so valuable. They start to modify their environment, change the structure of their day, use some strategies that we've talked about. Like that's when I know that they got it. They get it. That is so awesome to hear. I like, I love that so much. It's like taking my own notes. I'm like, this is so good. Like, I love hearing that. Like, cause that, that change that patients go through where they really are like all in on our recommendations and, and how we're guiding them through therapy where they become you know, they take the tools that we provide them and then they start implementing them. Like you just ran through that list where they start to modify their environment. And that all starts because they have awareness of how, like what their levels are at, what their attention level is at and what's impacting that. Because it's one thing to be like, oh, I'm at a two attention today. I'm doing really good. Then later I'm at an eight, but then they don't know why that happens. If they don't know why that happens, they can't change anything about it. They can't modify their environment or find alternate routes. So like it's an awareness that grows and builds, right? And that's so cool. I love that you have a scale that you use in session. And then that's easily something that they can take and apply outside of therapy so that they are able to monitor how they're doing throughout the day. Like that is so cool. I love it. I'm just like getting like such good tidbits of your practice and it's so good. Like, I love it. Thank you for sharing. No problem. Yeah. I, I don't know. I just, I came up with it one day because we have to ask people what their pain rating is all the time. So they, they're familiar with it. They know zero to 10, you know, sometimes they'll come in and see the sound before today. (laughs) They know what that means for them physically. It's great to kind of lead in and say, well, since you're already using this zero to 10 scale, let's use it in another way. You know, 10 is bad. 10 is the worst. Zero is the best. How attentive are you today? You know, and you, you don't know how to proceed or navigate until you know where you are. And like you said, I can't be with them every day, all day. So I am basically a facilitator, right? Like I know some people look at us as teachers, but we're not, we're facilitators. We're helping people help themselves. So we're guiding them through this journey of which strategies work for them, where barriers they have and things of that nature. And so they can go out into the real world and do it on their own, right? So yeah, I have cut up strips of paper and put scales and they're probably in different offices or on refrigerators and different places. But hey, it works. 
for the the patients that you know I see fit to have it, it works. Mm-hmm. Yep, absolutely. I that's another thing I love about our practice is that like as you're working, like you find these little things that you do that help. They like. Um, they provide something tangible for people to understand an abstract concept. And then that helps them utilize it and benefit from it. And so I I love these little things that like we kind of come up with in practice and yeah, it's great. Okay. So my next question is I'm kind of wondering what you think is next for our field related to kind of what we've been talking about, like with the mindful attention and awareness scale and using more of these metacognitive, well, we've always been using metacognitive strategies with our TBI patients, but I don't know that we've always been so focused on the mind, like, because you you said it earlier, you know, this is very buzzwordy, right? Ooh, meditation and mindfulness, and they can be misconstrued for being synonymous when they share features, but they're not the same at all, (laughs) very different things. But we're really like, we're using these things in practice now. So how do you see this shaping our practice? Well, I'll be very candid and I'll say that number one, we as a field have to take charge and take the reins and say that this is our scope, right? Because I still feel like there's a lot of blurry lines and a lot of, eh, this really isn't a speech thing or this really isn't, you know, or who does this or who do I go to? So I think there needs to be number one, more awareness of our field and our scope of practice. Number two, I think that we need to really understand what cognition is and what it entails and be able to explain it mm-hmm. to our peers, to our coworkers, our supervisors, right? So that we can be getting the appropriate referrals. And then we need to also start thinking about thinking outside the box, right? Like you say it. Those some of those tools you mentioned earlier, like maybe the scab the ripa slash ripa, however you know, tomato tomato. <laughs> That doesn't work on my population. That's useless for me. I can't have them draw a clock. I can't have ask them what day of the week it is or where are you. My patients are holding down full-time jobs. They have kids. They have wives. They are, are in husbands. They still travel. They still are actively engaged in their community. I need something tougher. I need something harder. And I use a few tougher ones like the T. The test of everyday attention, uh, APT, auditory processing test, some memory stuff. I, I end up piecing together stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Because some of the things are not as challenging as I need them to be to capture what I need to capture. And I don't I call it the favors, but I don't know if it's really called the favors. F A V R E the executive functioning test. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> um, that's what I call it. So but we'll do it together. <laughs> so you know we we have to dig deep and we have to dig wide to find things that are gonna get at what we need to get at right um so i think that that's we need to get out of our own way in that sense and not just be tied to these traditional assessments and then you know not be scared to try things in therapy Therapy is going to look a lot different for people 
who are who are really high functioning who's struggling with attention or who's struggling with processing or memory or something like that you may end up needing needing them to bring in materials from home you may end up needing to look up stuff online they may be in college courses right i've had to literally recreate lectures because some of my patients are taking online courses or help them study you know teach them how to study using attention or memory strategies or talk to them about sitting for lsat or a pmp project management certification test like if your attention sucks for lack of better word how the heck are you going to get through a full length test so we end up having to scale right like break things down into smaller parts master it and then put them together and kind of basically increase their endurance increase their tolerance increase their capacity but this is the beauty of rehab the thing we have on our side is neuroplasticity right the fact that our brain can change the way your brain is is not the way your brain has to be unless you have a neurodegenerative disease or, you know, something specifically structurally damaged, you know, to the point where it can't change. But for the most part, neuroplasticity is on our side. And so why not take advantage of it, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah, that would be my thing. Then to also look outside of our SLP literature into other literatures. This is not in our literature, this scale. I think I've seen it used in cancer populations. I'm not quite sure. I can't remember what other populations I've seen it used in, but I wouldn't have discovered it. Well, I would have because it was in my office, but (laughs) I would not have discovered it in the literature Uh if I was just looking for it there. So there's beautiful, wonderful things out there that could be implemented into our clinical care if we just think outside the box. That's excellent. Thank you so much, Dana. Um, I've loved this talk. I've loved learning about the mindful attention and awareness scale and how you're working with the acquired brain injury population. This was so much fun for me. I love it. Thank you so much. Before we wrap up, was there any other like last thoughts you wanted to share or talk about how people can connect with you if they want to learn more from you? Yeah. So um, I am on Instagram. I think that's how we connect. It was Instagram at the.neuro.slp. So you can find me there. I also have a Teachers Pay Teachers store where I kind of put a lot of my resources there just as a storage place, a housing place. And the attention rating scale that I came up with is actually on my Teachers Pay Teachers store so people can actually download that digitally if they if they like as well. But I put a lot of other things on there too related to memory, executive functioning. I'm just really wanting to increase people's confidence in this area because I know it's tough. I didn't learn this stuff in grad school. You don't learn this stuff in grad school. Um, You learn it through actually treating these populations. And so you have a large group of SLPs who want to help these people, this population of people, but they don't know how. Mm -hmm. And so my goal is to make sure that, you know, the SLPs that are out here doing it, 
right? We learn from it and then we give it to the next generation so that they can feel more empowered, more equipped to handle somebody on their caseload who's struggling with attention or struggling with executive functioning or memory or any of these, you know, uh, cognitive skills. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Wonderful. Thank you, Dana. Thank you. I appreciate it. I appreciate you. Thanks for reaching out and the invite. And I'm excited. I hope that this really ruffles some feathers in a good way. And I hope that it, you know, acts, enacts or provokes a lot of change in our field and inspires people to get creative. So I'm excited. Me too. I think I hope it does the same thing too. Like I always do though. <laughs> it's like, I just, I love sharing this information and, you know, for people who have oh, thanks. <laughs> Cause it's exciting to like learn about something and then be like, oh my gosh, I feel like that would really help my population, you know, and then be able to use it. Like that's the best. Like I love learning from other SLPs. It's so good. Thanks for listening to the Speech Uncensored podcast. Be sure to check out those show notes on speechuncensored.com and post a thoughtful review on Apple Podcasts so other SLPs can find the podcast and join us on this journey. I want to give a big thanks to my audio editor, Laura Miller, for her rock star editing skills. And thank you so much for listening to the show, for subscribing and joining us. I hope this material that we've covered today has nourished your mind so that your practice can flourish. Thank you.